Welcome to the Media Cat Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Mike Pigger, editor at the magazine. Uh, and for today's pod, uh, I'm happy to welcome uh, uh, Laurie Meekin. Uh, Laurie is an exec member at Wackle, uh, co-founder of Joint, and founder and CEO of The Others and Me, and author of the book, uh, No More Menemies, uh, a book about building a more gender equal world where men are no longer the enemy. Welcome, Laurie. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you on the pods um, and uh, doing stuff for the magazine. Um, so I thought, because when we first started talking, it was a little while ago. Um, so the book's been out for a bit now. Um, mm-hmm. But I thought perhaps before we could get into that, just we could start with, uh, you know, uh, how, how did the book all, all begin? Um, what prompted you to write an entire book on this particular subject? And mm-hmm. you know, what's, what's it about? That excellent question. So the um, the thing that prompted me to write the book, this is a little bit heavy. So it's this is the only time we're going to go into this difficult place. The rest of it is going to be filled with hope and positivity and learning. Um, but the truth is, what made me start was the murders of Sarah Everard and Spina Nessa in lockdown. Um, like a lot of people, uh, I found that really traumatic because it brought back a whole load of stuff. So I was uh, dragged from the street when I was um, just not long out of school as a young woman, violently sexually assaulted and then blamed by the police for bringing it on myself for having the audacity to wear a pair of yellow socks under a very long overcoat and above my DM shoes. And the thing, I don't want to dwell on that and I'm sorry for anybody out there amongst your listeners who's also experienced the same kinds of things. Um, but the thing that was really clear to me was I suddenly had this awful moment of it's over 30 years since that happened I really thought we'd have made more progress than we have and being exposed to things like the institutionalized misogyny as well as homophobia and racism of the Met Police and the way that so much of this is still a surprise to a lot of people and so many people still don't feel I didn't feel confident talking about it because I felt rage still Uh, which isn't a good thing to express, particularly if you're a woman. It's even worse if you're a black woman. You're not allowed to be angry. I felt a lot of shame. And I spent a lot of time as well worrying about how other people would think and worrying about their comfort. So there was a whole load of kind of messy stuff that came up. And I just, it really made me think that I need to go back and work through all the things that have happened in my life around having kids, being, you know, being treated differently at work and understanding that some of that was gendered in ways that I hadn't realized. And it made me go back and look at all of that stuff and go, I just need to understand why this is still going on. And also, I think like a lot of women do, even though we may not like to admit it, we often sit around going, God, why aren't men getting more involved? Like we've all seen the data, gender equality is good for men as well. Why are they not just doing more? And I was just like, actually, I'm going to stop just saying that in an exasperated way. And I'm going to just try and genuinely answer that question. And that's what triggered a whole bunch of research that then turned into the book. Okay. Yes. Uh, that, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> uh, so how, how's it been received, the book? Because it's been out a few weeks now or over a month? Or uh, Yeah, it has. It's been out a few weeks and it's been received incredibly well, actually. I'm so thrilled to hear people say um, what it means to them. I think interestingly, one of the things that people have said uh, that they're loving is there's a lot of data and evidence that really carefully lays out what are the issues that we're still facing? What is the kind of reality check on gender equality now? Because there's so much misinformation out there. 
And a lot of people have found that incredibly useful. It's prompting conversations. So I've had quite a few people, particularly people in straight relationships, where they're saying, I've read it and then I've passed it on to my partner or I've ordered it, but actually they got it first and they're reading it and I'll get it when they're finished. So that's really encouraging. Importantly, a lot of people have been saying things like, I've been shocked and saddened, but then uh, felt really inspired and hopeful. So making sure that it takes people on that journey to going, here's how we can start to solve all of this without it feeling self-sacrificial, without it feeling like it's a an either or. And also a lot of people talking about how because homophobia, transphobia, sexism, misogyny, they're all interlinked. They're all part of the same problem. Um, I've had some incredibly positive feedback from people across the LGBTQIA community saying that they really value how I look at, at, at the intersection of those things as well. Yeah, I mean, I suppose thinking about it, that there are tough subjects. And, and I was wondering, mm. this, is, this is your first book, right? The first book you've written. Yeah. It's a big thing to write a book, um, yeah. generally. And I was wondering, so when you were in the sort of planning stages, did you did you get much sort of pushback or objections of people going, you know, why don't you just, I don't know, do this as a talk or do something else? Like, what? why a book? I did, interestingly, the first pushback I got from a lot of people, and I think this really speaks to the culture and climate of fear and anxiety, particularly amongst men when we talk about gender equality. The first thing I got was like a bit of a terrified look and from men in particular, with them kind of going, is it going to be full of horror stories? Am I going to be in it? Is it going to be like you basically just kind of trashing men and telling us all where we've been going wrong? And I'm like, no, 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 it's the opposite of that. But I thought that was really interesting. And then, yeah, quite a few people around me in my support network, my family, friends, loved ones, were kind of going, that's quite a big undertaking. Uh, are you sure you've got time to do that as well as everything else? But I think as soon as I started getting into the research and seeing how much I was learning and how much there was that I wanted to share, I kind of got nothing but support. People were just like, it sounds like an amazing thing and it feels like it's going to be important. So, yeah, really supportive. Oh, that's good. I mean, I, I suppose sticking with the men the men bit for now, um, <laughs> uh, I think uh, there was a, a, a recent, uh, you had a recent comment in the Washington Post, uh, was, there was a maybe it was something you shared where it's uh, titled men are lost and you said something around you know we can attempt to make men more pro-social can you sort of dig into that a little bit or explain what you meant yes yeah, so that was an article in the washington post written by a journalist christine ember ah, where yes, yes. Uh, she created a, a huge really interesting incredibly kind of deep and broad essay about uh as she put it why men are lost and what we can do about it and she talked about what she called a strategy that's about kind of encouraging men um, to use the things that they're already interested in and motivated by and using that in a way that's pro-social, which is exactly what my book does, which basically means, I think for too long, conversations about gender equality have told men all the stuff that they're doing wrong. And has even told men, it's going to be good for you if you change. And actually, I know from working on things like drugs education and anti-smoking campaigns, that that stuff doesn't work. You can tell people something's going to kill them, and it still doesn't necessarily change their behavior. So what I thought was interesting about what she said and what the whole strategy within No More Minimies is all about is kind of saying, why don't we take the things that men are already interested in and motivated by and the, that they enjoy and the qualities and attributes that they have 
whether they're nature or nurture, we could discuss that another time, but use those things in a way that solves some of the problems that exist in the world. So rather than going, here's a problem you need to change in order to make it better, we go, here's a problem, here's how you could use more of the stuff that you already like doing in a way that solves that problem. And that's what I understand she was meaning by using those things to be pro-social. Yeah, I mean, it it almost sounds like trying to go with the current or with the tide rather than, or or with the grain or something like that, you know, as as opposed to it. It's exactly, and it's really interesting as well, because where that kind of came from, I've spent like 30 years in advertising, branding, strategy. Before that, I was a teacher and everything I learned in both of those places did exactly that. This was the strategy you'd use. So I'd go, what exactly is the problem? Let's really understand what the problem is. But then let's put that to one side because no consumer wakes up going, how can I solve your business problem for you? They go, here's the stuff I care about. Here are the things that I want and need and value. And as a strategist, I would always go, how do we identify what those things are and then use those in a way that solves the client's business problem or seizes that business opportunity? So it's basically just using exactly that strategy (laughs) to try and solve gender inequality. That's the, yes, yeah, exactly. It's a big, big, big solve all the world's problems, please. Um, someone has to. I, I suppose, kind of on on that, really. I d- and again, I don't know how much your book digs into this, but mm-hmm. why, why, why are men so lost? Why, how did we get to this point? Um, I was trying, I was trying to sort of think back. You know, I'm, I'm, I sit in the sort of older millennial camp. Uh, there were, we, you know, we had nineties and girl power with the Spice Girls, etc., and the, that the sort of rise of that. Did men get leave, left behind at that point, do you think? Or, or you know, has this been even longer in the making in terms of a thing that we've just never really addressed, perhaps, as yeah. glo- global society? It is. I think it's the latter. If you look back, I mean, it's a it's a struggle that's been going on for centuries. Um, you know, if you can look back to the witchcraft trials of the, you know, 1600s. And, you know, even before that, there was a lot of ways where women would be demonized and marginalized. And when they expressed power or any sense of agency, they would be immediately kind of squashed down. You can trace it right back to ancient Greece, where interestingly, a lot of the sort of Western culture kind of derives from. So it's been, it's been a gradual process for a long time. And I think it's what's interesting, though, I think, is that recently, And probably in the last kind of decade or so, some things probably actually kind of accelerated by social media and the internet have kind of exacerbated some of the issues and the backlash and the fears and the worry that I think have always been, you know, clearly always been the case. Any change will always kind of create some sort of backlash and some kind of resentment. But I think a lot of that has been exacerbated by some voices particularly in kind of spaces where men can go and be feel safe because a lot of the time they feel they're not able to talk about the resentment that they might feel or the worry that are they being overlooked and when they hear things like the future is female a bit like with um black lives matter like there's a two on that sentence that i think it's not saying the future is female instead of male it's saying the future is female too but it doesn't feel like that i think to to a lot of men and then there's so so there's a lot of those things that are exacerbating it and there's a radicalization of young men in particular that's kind of really quite terrifying but there's some other things as well I think that are interesting that are going on so one is the notion of the zero-sum game so again it's really easy to think that 
gender equality or a dismantling of the patriarchy or feminism are about women taking over and subjugating men. And interestingly, one of the reasons that happens is because the way men and boys tend to be socialized through conversation, through humor, through sport, through what they like, what's defined as leadership is about competition. It's about who's up versus who's down, who's the winner, who's the loser. So that mindset that boys are socialized with actually makes it really difficult to lean into something like this in a way that says, actually, we're all going to be winners because it doesn't compute with those like centuries of socialization. Whereas interestingly, girls tend to be socialized to be more collaborative and communal. So it's probably easier for women to understand that we can all be winners. Um, yeah. And the other, the other just like laugh little thing on this, that again, I find fascinating is a frame of reference Like we all know that loss aversion is a big thing. We fear the things that we lose and we value that loss more than we value potential gain. And I think if you're particularly a cis straight white man, feels like there's a lot that's been lost and men will often seem to frame gender equality in those terms, whereas and more often uh, for women or people who've been marginalized, they frame it in terms of where are we, where do we need to get to? So that sense of loss for men, I think is a, is a big thing. Yeah, that that sounds like a a pretty hard mindset shift to shift. Uh, it got me thinking actually, um, and I know you didn't plan this, or maybe you did. Um, if you're if you're friends with uh, with uh, Greta Gerwig, um, but obviously with the the Barbie movie out at the, around the same time as your book, um, yeah. Suddenly, it feels like actually, you know, there are lots of conversations going on around feminism and gender equality, um, perhaps that there weren't like two three months ago. Um, yeah. And that, that's really interesting, just seeing. Also seeing all the different takes on, uh, well, mostly on TikTok, but um, yeah. <laughs> off the back of the Barbie movie. But I think Greta Gerwig said that she didn't necessarily consider it a feminist movie, but more a humanist movie, um, mm-hmm. which was was quite interesting. And maybe that's her way of reframing what, you know, reframing feminism a little bit. You know, when yeah. you say like it's not about um, competing or whatever. Absolutely. And even the word feminism is one of those things where it's it's a fascinating word because a lot of the time that is read as meaning that's about women taking over or it's about women versus men, uh, when actually the definition of feminism is everyone being equal regardless of their gender, uh, everyone having equal opportunities. But yeah, I think it is, it's a fascinating and I love it. I think anything that brings these conversations out into the light is a positive thing. I think just trying to make sure that those conversations happen in a spirit of openness and mutual respect rather than kind of, you know, ranting and raging and burning Barbies and telling everybody who doesn't agree with you how evil they are. Um, that's never helpful. I, I suppose as well, like you, you mentioned some some factors, but um, the, the pandemic's got to be one as well that's kind of like, uh, you know, it's isolated a lot of people. And I kind of think, you know, slightly from my point of view, but uh, just things you see and read that it, it perhaps further served to push some men into isolation and, and wilderness and and the women tend to have more support networks during these kind of times uh yeah, yeah I'd, I'd, it's not really a question there it's just a, a thought really I, I don't know if you touched on that much yeah i think you're right the 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 loneliness that some men experience i think is a really important thing we know that loneliness is a killer it's as you know, extreme loneliness can be as damaging to your health as kind of smoking 20 cigarettes a day or something, which is shocking. And there are significant numbers of men who claim to have very few or even no close friendships. We know as well all the horrific data about men's mental health and suicide being such an enormous killer of men. 
But I think one of the things as well that's really interesting and that kind of bears a bit of unpacking is the kinds of friendships that men have rather than women. And again, this is not because any individual man makes the decision or is being willful around this. It's because, you know, centuries of social of socialization have led to men having what psychologists call shoulder-to-shoulder friendships and conversations as opposed to face-to-face ones where you'll kind of watch sport together or, you know, kind of sit in the pub, uh, you know, kind of buy a bar and have a beer together. But those conversations are often about something else rather than about how you're feeling. And again, they often have this kind of who's up, who's down, the kind of banter that sits behind it, which makes it really hard to kind of go, actually, I'm feeling a bit vulnerable. Whereas women have been socialized again to have much more kind of face-to-face conversation that's more about how are we feeling? Are we closer together or further apart? How are we understanding each other? So finding ways of either changing that dynamic or using that dynamic in ways that enable men to be able to open up, I think are really, really important important areas. And again, I think comedy is something that's so underused. It's something that's so massively important, so valuable. And I hear a lot of men kind of go, it's quite difficult these days, you know, just trying to kind of banter, but you can't say anything. It was just a joke. But I think thinking about how do we use humor and banter to enable some of that vulnerability and to kind of laugh at and gently unpick the system that's damaging everybody rather than seeing humor as a thing that you can't use anymore. I think it's a really interesting opportunity. Yeah, I've seen that a few times over the last few years for people, not not necessarily this area, but at least within advertising, talking about how um, humour needs to be used more. And when it does get used, it's often quite a clunky way. Yeah, which is interesting. Um, yeah. With the with the book, um, how much of it did you write a, a sort of thinking about the, I don't know, the sort of advertising marketing brands business world? Or was it sort of more on a sort of societal level that you were thinking at the time? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think it started from it wasn't about advertising and marketing it was definitely because i think it started from that sense that a advertising and marketing needs to speak to and resonate with real people out there in the world um so understanding real people rather than starting from a marketing point of view felt like it was really important but and and also yeah i just wanted to understand kind of what's going on in the world out there and then see how that could be useful from a business point of view so where it ends is that actually there's enormous amounts of money to be gained by leaning into that this stuff and getting it right because there's so much about the way we see the world as default males, the way we all, and by all I mean women as well as men, prioritize the masculine, kind of think that's better, think it's more valuable, the way we engage with each other as people, as leaders, the way we respect each other's expertise there's like so much opportunity actually for businesses and for marketing and advertising to learn uh, which is why I ended up deciding after writing the book that I'm going to start a consultancy that does exactly that so I wasn't planning that at the beginning but that became apparent as the book went on that's good to know yeah I should have I should have asked you that because I uh, I saw um uh the others and me didn't look like it was it was uh very old or been going a couple of months so i was like okay that's probably linked in some way yeah um that makes sense yeah i guess i guess yeah if, if you're getting lots of questions around the book but digging into sort of how do we do this sort of stuff as as a business um it reminds me of um uh disability inclusion conversations i've had in the past with people mm-hmm. where they've said um you know if nothing else here's the business case for it you could make lots of money 
Absolutely. And I think, again, that's just like, it's so important. I happen to believe that helping everybody live happier, healthier, more fulfilling lives, whether, you know, whatever your gender is a beautiful and positive thing to do. But yeah, even if, and I think we can't always expect companies to go, that's my first priority. The first priority of a company is to have a healthy, happy, thriving, growing business uh, that can support all the people that they employ and return money to shareholders. So it makes perfect sense to me to start with companies by saying, here's how you could be more successful. Here are profit pools that you might be missing. Here are opportunities to grow that you could seize that your competitors haven't spotted. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, I, I suppose I've seen a few few um, uh, bits and bobs that you shared on LinkedIn in recent mm-hmm. times, obviously linked link to the book and the things that you're working on. I imagine a lot of the people commenting are people from the advertising sort of marketing world. As a kind of barometer, you know, what what are their sort of responses? Do they do they often think that you're writing about certain agencies or people? Or I mean, maybe maybe you are, but you're not. You know, it's best not to say who they are. I don't know. I mean, what's what's their sort of reaction? You know. Yeah, I haven't had a lot of that. It tends to be when so a lot of the time it feels like there the response. There's a lot of positive responses from people who are already active in this space, encouraging me and wanting to do more. Who find ways of being able to kind of bring the conversation on really useful there are interestingly some people who work in the kind of inclusion space dni space who are kind of engaging with it as well and again not surprisingly it feels like there's some dni faces a lot of challenges and the kind of backlash and the cancel culture fear about what you can say but not really wanting to get involved is a big issue i think in that space so finding a way through that feels like it's really valuable in terms of the negatives, what I've noticed is actually it tends to be much more personal when people respond in a negative way, which again, I find so interesting where it feels like when we're talking about something kind of more systemic, sometimes despite my best efforts, I will still get largely men, sometimes not men, but most of the time, a, a kind of angry man telling me that I'm wrong because my granddad did this or I do that for this reason or all of which I can completely understand. This stuff is really personal and it can really kind of strike a nerve. But the responses seem to be people understanding it as a personal affront or a personal insult more than... I've not had anyone go, oh, you're talking about my company. Yeah, okay, fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) No, yeah, it is quite interesting. I mean, I guess we're all living in our own little worlds and bubbles. So um, yeah, a lot of people bring it. It, it, It's that... that, I I always think it just comes back to empathy, right? Like, can you you empathise? Can you think about what others might be, you know, things that are going to them that haven't occurred to you. Yeah. Um, And there's blind spots as well, because I think think you're absolutely right. Again, one of the other fascinating things I learned is sometimes kind of going, how would I feel in that position? And trying to empathize is really, really valuable. In other times, actually, that can be a little bit counterproductive because there's like important blind spots or bits of information that people are missing. And it's really easy to make an assumption about what life would look like if it were the other way around that actually isn't the case. So yeah, I'd say blind spots, recognizing blind spots as well as kind of work, you know, leaning into empathy are both super important. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Um, I guess I was thinking on the empathy point of view, and maybe it's maybe it's just me, maybe other guys have this too, but it's, we have it, but it's, it's more, it needs to be activated or turned on. Just somebody needs to prod you and go, have you thought about this? And you go, oh, I see. it's it's like it's it's like it's dormant until somebody gives it a prod (laughs) yeah absolutely and it's something that all the men that i've spoken to 
they had it in abundance and were really proud of it as well. And I think one of the things that's also really interesting is that not only do we not necessarily kind of prod men or encourage them to kind of here's your moment to empathize, but actually we don't necessarily kind of reward them and celebrate that as well. And I think there's something so powerful about every single one of the men I talked to when I'd given them a chance to kind of go, tell me about how you engage in this sort of area or opportunities to express their empathy. They were incredibly good at it and incredibly proud of it as well. And again, I think building on that positive is something that's uh, that's really important because men are able to do that just as much as women. It's just we tend to kind of encourage boys and young men not to do that as much and tell girls that that's the thing that they're really good at. But by the way, it's not that valuable when, of course, it is. It's interesting as well because when you're saying about that sort of the, the reward part of that, um, it, it makes me think of... Um, things that you uh, do for children when you're teaching them things, but we mm. stop stop doing for adults. We sort yeah. of stop rewarding them for stuff. Absolutely. And all of that positive reinforcement is just so important and valuable. Everybody, you know, we all love being praised. We all love that kind of positive feedback loop. And I think, again, the gender debate and work seems to have spent an inordinate amount of time telling men all the stuff that they're doing wrong and making them feeling feel bad about themselves which is different to me from going, here's the picture of what the reality is. Now let's put that to one side and go, let's work on the positive things that you have as a as a decent human being. Yeah, and that makes sense. Actually, well, I, I realize we're slightly running out of time, and as I always do with these podcasts, <laughs> but I've got a few questions I want to ask before we do. Um, so one of them is around uh, February uh, this year, we had a theme in the magazine of, of hope and kindness. I guess looking at building a more gender equal world, what what sort of gives you hope right now? I obviously don't want to make it all about sort of doom and gloom and um, mm-hmm. things that are impossible to fix. Um, but looking at sort of business and society and people and perhaps reactions to your book, you know, yeah. what, what what's giving you hope? I think exactly what we just talked about, the things that happen when we talk to each other in a spirit of openness and non-judgment. And when sitting down with the 23 men that I'd had really deep conversations with, I left everyone full of so much hope, so much inspiration and so much positivity because we just need to have conversations differently, I think. And then there's so much to build on that's going to benefit all of us. Well, that, that makes sense. That's, that's good to know. Good to know. <laughs> do, you have, do you have plans for a next book or is, this, is it more going to be around the consultancy um, that you mentioned earlier? I think it's, you know, I would always go staying curious and keeping learning is really important. So I'm definitely kind of need to make sure I don't have a mindset that's like, that's done and dusted. I've learned everything there is to know about that. So yeah, there may well be another book. I don't even know about what yet. It may be about the business, more specifically about how this applies to business. That makes up one chapter of this book. It could well make up a whole book. Or it might be about something that I've not yet identified that becomes clear as as we kind of move forward. Okay, very interesting. Watch this space. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, to finish on books, we uh, now obviously now that you're author, I can't I can't not ask this, but mm-hmm. we we have a, a series in the magazine called Four Four Favorite Books. So um, yeah. you know, asking people their all time or their current favorites or or ones on their reading list. Um, what what have you got for me? Uh, so, I've got this was hard. This was, this was like Sophie's choice trying to pick just four. Um, but I've gone for. Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez and The Authority Gap by Mary Ann Seacart as the first two. Both of those were literally life-changing for me because I thought I knew a fair bit about gender equality and the way the world works. And both of those 
just taught me so much about how we're all socialized in ways we don't even realize to do things in a way that makes life disproportionately difficult for women, but that also damages men as well. So those were my first two kind of life-changing ones. The third is really punctually titled. It's written by a guy called Thomas Chamorro Premusic. He's an expert in kind of leadership. And he's written a book called Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? Um, it's a very punchy title. He writes in an incredibly kind of engaging way, but also so much research and data that gets you beyond that kind of numbers game that a lot of people play. It's like we need kind of X number of people in the boardroom. And he kind of strips away and gets to the idea of what is it that great leadership looks like and then looks at kind of gender again through that lens. So that was absolutely an education. And my last one, and the reason for this is there's a quote from Sean Fay, who's a transgender woman. She says, misogyny, homophobia, and transphobia share much of the same DNA to the patriarchy. We all do gender wrong. And her book, The Transgender Issue, was absolutely enlightening, inspiring, incredible. Um, I'd recommend everybody go read that one as well. I think there's so much we can learn from people who transgress the gender norms in all kinds of ways. And I think for all of us, the patriarchy makes all of us actually feel like we do gender wrong and there's so much we can learn from each other. Amazing. Um, great choices. Um, well, I think what actually we will probably what we'll try and do is maybe put those on the magazine uh, in a sort of written form. So we do that for for, for people that submit them. So um, obviously we've got the audio version, but I think it'd be nice to put them up like that as well. So um, uh, that'd be great. But uh, yeah, just thank you so much for, for uh, a lovely conversation. And thanks for coming on the Media Cat Magazine podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been great to chat.